The Old Testament reading for the 21st Sunday after Pentecost is from Isaiah chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form lights and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel in St. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the gospel of the Lord's. We now grace, mercy, and peace unto you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus has just told three parables. We've seen them over the last few weeks. And this is the beginning of three tests. As it said, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. It's a trap. And in fact, there's three tests right in a row. There's going to be this one on taxes, the next one on the resurrection, and then finally there's also going to be um, a couple of, uh, one more test that follows that as well. And then Jesus sets his own trap. He says, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, David's. And he says, well, then how can David say that the Messiah is his Lord's? And then it says, it's really interesting, at the end of this chapter, then they refused to ask him anything else. They gave up. 
And Jesus here in our text this evening does not take the bait, but he cuts through their test with a truth that we all need to hear that has implications for every day of our lives. And he does this by reframing it, by getting us to think about what is Caesar's and what is God's. We need to know a little background to understand this test better. You see, the issue, of course, is taxes, which means some things never change. People are always upset about taxes. It's interesting, too, this text comes up in the various lectionaries, always right around voting time. And so it makes us think a little bit more about the political trap that's been set. But it's not just a political trap. It's a religious trap. You see, what they're doing is they're hoping he'll give an answer that'll upset at least half of the people. If he says, don't pay taxes, then he's made himself a trouble to Rome, and they hope Rome will make him pay for it. If he says, you should pay taxes, then there's a group of Jews he's going to greatly upset, and so they think this is quite a clever question. And in fact, it is. It's a really good setup. It's a really good trap. Unless, of course, you're talking to the very Son of God. Now, part of the reason it's a trap even for the Jews, and the reason it's so contested among them, is because the coin has on it the picture of the Emperor Tiberius. And on the coin it says, below his picture, Son of God. And on the back side, it has a picture of his mom, and it says, Goddess of Victory. So when Jesus says, why don't you give me one of those coins? And they pull it out of their pocket, and he says, hypocrites, not only because they're trying to trap him, but also because they're carrying around the coin that has these idolatrous images that they supposedly are against. So Jesus first throws it back on them. But then he gives what seems like a non-answer, because it kind of is. Jesus often doesn't answer a question directly. Jesus asks another question, and that's what he does here. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render, give back. The idea is that it, it already belongs to him, you're just giving it back. So Jesus frames it this way, what is Caesar's? And the answer here is the money. Why is the money Caesar's? Because it has his image on it. If it has his image on it, it belongs to him. So Jesus says, give it to him then. You see, Jesus is establishing, as the entire Bible does, that rulers are established by God. Because of that, we as citizens, we have particular duties that we owe them. Paul spells this out clearest in Romans 13. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. He expounds on that a little bit, but then he says, to narrow it down, therefore one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That is, that you may have a clear conscience in regard to how you treat the rulers. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So give back to Caesar, render to him the things you owe him, taxes, honor, respect, obedience. As the fourth commandment in our small catechism tells us, we should fear and love God so we do not despise or anger our parents or other authorities, but honor them. Serve and obey them, love and cherish them. So Jesus says, go ahead and give it back to him, because isn't it his? And by pointing out the image, he's called their bluff anyway. They're carrying around the coin too. And how can they deny it's his when his very picture, and his mom's picture for that matter, are stamped on it? But then he gives a second part that's even more important, and it's more significant. And render to God the things that are God's. Render to him. Give back to God what is his. So what are you to do with that? Well, the answer is you. You have the divine image stamped upon you. It was there in creation and it's being restored in redemption through the work that Christ is doing in you. God thinks that you are so important and significant that he stamped you with his very divine image. He did it when he created you in your mother's womb, and now it's being restored in Christ to be all that it should be, all that Adam ruined of that image, is being restored day by day in Christ Jesus. So you bear the divine image. You are what belongs to God. And so, to render to God what is God's, the answer is everything. All of you. All that you are, all that you have, is God's. And so, you are to render to him yourself. Paul puts it this way. Do you not know that your, whole, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Because God has created you, because he's redeemed you, because you bear his image, you acknowledge that in all that you do, all that you think, 
all that you are. What this also means then, too, is that even what you have from Caesar is ultimately from God himself. There is nothing you have, not even the things the government provides, that isn't ultimately from God's. And that's quite significant, and we're going to look more at that in a moment. So what kind of things do we give back to God? First and foremost, we give him our faith. We fear, love, and trust in him above all things. As our confessions say, we also worship. Our confessions say that faith is the highest form of worship. And then after that, of course, comes prayer, praise, and thanks. Also, the, the three T's that you're very familiar with, time, talents, and treasure. And remember, it's not time or talents or treasure. It's time and talents, and treasure. All the things God has blessed you with. All of you is what you give back to God. Now, everything that's been said so far has vast implications for your entire life. But I want to look at some specific ones, especially as we face government issues in our own day and age. The first one comes from what we sang in our introits. Where do you look for help? When things get bad, when things get tough, where do you look for help? We sang, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. There's a wonderful book written shortly after World War II by a man named Robert Nisbet, called The Quest for Community. I think it's a rather significant book that's very helpful for churches to think about building community. But one point he makes in there is very interesting. He says, after World War II, the government sought to become the end-all, be-all for everyone. To break down the little groups of people into individuals so that everyone was looking to the government for all of their needs. There's a danger, it's very prominent in our day and age, to look to the government for all good things. In fact, the way politicians talk, you would think they could give you all good things. But as you know, it's empty rhetoric. They can do certain good and useful things, but even when they do that, behind them is standing our Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Second, Jesus' answer is really quite complex. On one hand, he's saying, don't compromise. Which the group the Pharisees brought with them, the Herodians that we heard about, is exactly what they did. They've compromised with Rome. So we don't compromise on the one hand, but on the other hand, Jesus doesn't want us to be zealots. Now that became a very technical term after the New Testament, for a group of people that were always trying to revolt against the Roman government. They try to cause uprisings through assassinations, through causing trouble here and there. Jesus doesn't want us to do that either. What does Paul tell us? As far as possible, we're to live at peace with all men. We are to be the best citizens as far as we can be. 
But this also means, if there's no compromise, that at all times, we must always obey God rather than men when push comes to shove. A lot of people look at this text and talk about the two kingdoms, which is good. We have God's heavenly kingdom on the right hand and the earthly kingdom on the left. But sometimes when we talk about that, we forget that Jesus is king and ruler of both. Think about our reading from Isaiah. Cyrus, this pagan king, who it says does not know Yahweh, that is, doesn't believe in him, doesn't trust in him for salvation, God used him to bless his people, to send them back to the promised land, to provide money to build up the temple. God can use rulers for our goods. But when a ruler commands what God forbids, when they command something that God says, don't do this, or when they forbid us from doing something God has commanded, not only is it an option to resist and disobey, but the Bible says we must. In fact, story after story throughout the Old Testament and New is God's people resisting tyrants. But with that is something kind of unique. You see this especially play out in the New Testament. Even our disobedience, we try to honor them. Which is weird, right? How do we do that? But we submit to the punishment that comes from disobeying, even while we resist. This also means, dear saints, that you must know the stories of the Old Testament. You must know about the Hebrew midwives who lied to the Pharaoh to save those babies and they were blessed by God with their own families. We need to know about Rahab who hid the spies and misdirected and lied to the troops to let the spies go free. And she and her household were saved. She even gets put into the line of the Messiah, Jesus. We need to know that Peter and the apostles preached after they were told not to preach. We need to look throughout history at the holy martyrs who have suffered and died because the government told them they could not preach Christ or worship him. Now look, we're barely scratching the surface here. This is a very complex issue. But we must know at least these things. If you want to know more, you can read the great confession, the Magdeburg Confession, written by our Lutheran fathers, that address many of these issues. But one more thing we need to look at, though, is Jesus and the Roman cross. It's rather fascinating. His submission to that cross is his resistance. It's how he brings about life to the world. It's how he brings about life to you and me. He doesn't fight them. He doesn't call down his angels against them. He offers himself up as a sacrifice. And we too, as Christians, when we disobey for the sake of God and his holy word and the holy gospel, we submit and suffer the consequences. And in that, we win. We win. We have the victory. We don't fear those things because we have hope and confidence that Christ has won all things, that he's defeated sin and death and hell, and that we will rise again 
That's how all of these people throughout Scripture could be so bold and the martyrs down throughout the ages. They were bold and could stand up to the most powerful people in the world because they they knew Jesus had their back. They knew Jesus was on their sides. Now the goal is always, as I said, to live peaceful and quiet lives. But sometimes that means we have to speak up and we have to be loud. Because the real peace comes through Jesus and his cross for us and for all. As you consider this passage, you must always keep in mind that you were created, you were redeemed by our Lord, and you bear his divine image. You are baptized into the very name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From that moment on, you've been shaped by that event. And it changes the way we respond to everything, even questions about taxes. Your life is cruciform. That is, it's been shaped by the cross of Jesus. And it's that cross that's placed upon you in your baptism, both on your forehead and your heart, that matters more than anything else. When we're challenged with these kind of things in our culture, we must always go back to Jesus' answer. We can render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, because God owns everything. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.